Chapter 6 Street Duties Training Arriving on your first day at your first divisional operational police station is a pretty terrifying experience. Additionally, nothing can prepare you for walking out onto a busy street in broad daylight in full police uniform for the first time. There were about six of us who arrived from training school, and we soon found out that half of us, including me, would be posted to Sutton and Wallington, and the other half would be posted to Epsom and Banstead. We all had to complete a 10-week phase of continuous training which was called Street Duties Instruction and involved us being chaperoned at all times by experienced officers for the first few weeks. We would then be allowed to patrol unsupervised on foot in pairs. The other operational officers treated us literally as if we were invisible and it was apparent that we were the equivalent of pond life in the pecking order. It was depressing that we'd gone from being at the top of one tree at training school to the bottom of another one on division. However, the street duties instructors were a good bunch and treated us with patience combined with a great deal of piss-taking at our cluelessness. The first week involved very little police work as such. It was more about getting used to being out and about, mixing with the public, learning the basics of radio communications, and getting to know the geography of the division. This is always the hardest thing about arriving at a new division, even for experienced officers, because your safety and the safety of your colleagues depends on you knowing exactly where you are at all times if you need help in a hurry. Therefore, you have to learn the names of the main thoroughfares and the streets running off them quite quickly. You also have to get into the habit of remembering the name of the street that you've just turned into and the street duties instructors would regularly test this by asking us every 20 minutes or so which road we were currently in, and which road we had just left. Effective radio communications were vital, and we had to get used to having a conversation with a member of the public whilst simultaneously listening to radio commentary from others, which on a busy late shift was more or less continuous. In particular, we had to get used to listening out for our own call sign, which was our colour number. After a few months, this became completely second nature, and it has always amazed me how the human brain can pick out a tiny scrap of information in the midst of lots of background noise, whilst multitasking or having a conversation with a member of the public. We learned the importance of keeping our radio transmissions accurate, brief and easy to understand. Our initial efforts were pretty poor and we all incurred the wrath of the experienced officers and control room operators when we messed up the phonetic alphabet or failed to respond to our call signs. We had to learn the call signs of all the vehicles in the division and in time also the collar numbers of all our colleagues. The vehicles were given call signs depending on what they were there to do. Every division had its own rapid response car, which was called the area car. These were driven by advanced drivers who were highly trained to navigate the busy London roads at high speed to attend the most urgent calls. They were also authorised to pursue stolen vehicles or vehicles refusing to stop and possibly therefore involved in crime. I had already had a small taste of the considerable skills of the area car driver 
at the end of my familiarisation course many months before. The area car was also crewed by a PC operator whose job it was to navigate, operate the in-car radio and do most of the paperwork along the way. The operator posting lasted for a month at a time and was a highlight for a trainee PC. It was also an opportunity to really screw everything up, as area car drivers could be extremely demanding taskmasters. The Sutton area car had the call sign Zulu 4, and the other surrounding stations and divisions had their own area cars prefixed by the letter Z. Then there were incident response vehicles, IRVs, the drivers of which were allowed to drive fast using blue lights and two-tone sirens, but were not permitted to pursue. Arguably one of the most important vehicles in the divisional fleet was the van, which had the call sign Zulu Tango 2. The vans were essential for carrying violent detainees who could not be placed in a car because of their aggressive behaviour. They were also used to transport half the occupants of the canteen, who had run into the yard, leaving their food half-eaten, to go to help a colleague calling for urgent assistance. I can remember many times when six or eight officers would pile into the back of Zulu Tango 2 as the driver was wheel-spinning out of the station yard, frequently with one or more officers falling out the back doors, which hadn't been closed properly, much to the amusement of everyone. I don't think I heard the terms health and safety or risk assessment for at least the first five or six years of my police service, and we generally adopted a pretty reckless approach to our own and each other's safety. Finally, there was the Panda cars, which were driven by officers who were not authorised to use blue lights or two-tones and were used for non-emergency calls. In practice at this time, what you were allowed to do as per regulations was given very little heed. In reality, if an officer was calling for assistance or if you were going to a call relating to suspects being chased on foot, many of these regulations were conveniently ignored. If you had a prying, you usually had to explain how it happened to a hard-faced traffic sergeant who had had his sense of humour surgically removed. As a result, there was the ever-present danger of at best being banned from driving a police car and at worst being prosecuted for dangerous driving. This all stopped in the mid-1990s with the introduction of in-car recording black boxes, which could be used after an accident and would show exactly what speed the car had been doing, when the brakes were applied, the level of acceleration and so on. After this point, irresponsible driving came mostly to an end. Each division formed part of a larger district. Thus, Sutton was part of Z district, which comprised a large chunk of South London, from Wimbledon in the north, across to Croydon in the east, and Epsom in the south. Sutton was pretty much in the middle of the district. The district to the north and west of Z district was V district, and this included places like Wimbledon, Kingston-upon-Thames and Mitcham. I soon realised that while Sutton didn't have the same inner city grit and high levels of crime as some of the divisions I'd hankered after, it did have a lot going on, and it was not the worst place to learn the basics of policing. It also had a diverse demographic in a relatively compact area. It had several large council estates, leafy suburban enclaves, 
wealthy pockets of London's stockbroker belt, a bustling high street with lots of shops, pubs and semi-rural villages towards Epsom. It also had many fast arterial routes in and out of London towards the M25. These roads were frequently used by criminal gangs travelling out into the wealthier parts of Surrey to commit high-value burglaries and armed robberies using high-powered stolen cars. So Zulu 4 used to get involved in a lot of high-speed pursuits, sometimes travelling down into Hampshire or Sussex, all monitored above by the Met helicopter, India 99. In the first few weeks, we were taught how to deal with relatively trivial issues. For example, we spent a lot of time dealing with minor traffic infringements. The thinking was that handling such infringements taught you how to deal with members of the public in a context where you were enforcing the law, but where it didn't matter too much if you got it wrong or messed up. The easiest offences to spot and deal with, and thus the best ones for fledgling probationary police officers, were committed around pedestrian crossings, either traffic light controlled or zebra crossings. For example, parking on the zigzags on the approach to a crossing, or failing to stop for a pedestrian using a crossing, are easy offences to enforce. Therefore, we were shown how to hide behind bus shelters and lampposts to watch the crossings, and when we spotted an offence, we would have to smartly step out into the road and motion the driver towards the side of the road to stop. We would then have to speak to the driver, advise them that they had committed an offence, and do the necessary paperwork. Most of the time, the people we dealt with were apologetic and embarrassed, which made the whole exercise fairly painless. However, inevitably we would often deal with people who'd failed the attitude test. The attitude test was something we very quickly learned to be a key component of Met policing jargon. The test was failed most commonly by two types of people. Firstly, by individuals who already had a criminal record and had previous brushes with the law. Their response to us stopping them or dealing with them for anything was met with four-letter words, the waving of arms, raised voices and generally a fair bit of drama. This can be quite intimidating for inexperienced officers, many of whom come from very law-abiding backgrounds and wouldn't dream of speaking to a police officer in such a way. Most police officers learn to be quite thick-skinned or they jack the job in because they can't deal with confrontation. Personally, after the initial shock of having this behaviour directed towards me, I learned to detach myself emotionally from it completely. Weirdly, I often find it entertaining to watch someone lose their shit, and the more agitated they became, the more polite I would be. Sometimes this was hard, however, particularly if I was feeling tired or emotional about something going on outside work, and some scrot had said something really nasty to me. Police officers get told some really unpleasant things pretty regularly. I hope you die painfully of cancer is a popular one. Another popular one is, I'm going to find out where you live and rape your wife or girlfriend or mother when you're at work. Charming. One of the best pieces of advice that I was given during my street duties training was from my PC instructor Bob, who told me never to swear at people and never to get involved in an argument or to raise your voice. 
By doing these things, Bob explained, you have immediately lost and you're no better than them. I stuck to this advice my whole career and it never let me down. The only time I broke this rule was when I once lost it with a pair of horrible, gobby, foul-mouthed teenagers who had been terrorising an old man who lived alone in his council flat. They'd been posting dog shit through the letterbox and banging on his windows day and night for weeks on end. I had sat with him, holding his hand as he wept, as he told me that he wished he was dead. When I then found them, I had to be restrained by a colleague. I was so angry I could have cheerfully killed them both. When my colleague put me into the police car, I was in tears of rage. The second type who regularly failed the attitude test were those upper-middle-class types who clearly believed that the law was for everyone else but not for them. Such people would try to bully you into letting them off by name-dropping senior police officers they vaguely knew or magistrates they played golf with, before threatening to get you disciplined by saying they would make sure that you lose your job. I eventually really enjoyed dealing with this type of person because it was amusing to watch someone with a strong sense of entitlement realise, perhaps for the first time in their life, that they weren't going to get their way by being a bully and a pain in the arse. My advice to you, if you ever get stopped by the police, for something you know that you've done, which is definitely an offence, regardless of whether you think that it should be an offence or not, is the following. Number one. Don't lose your shit. Secondly, if you do lose your shit, it almost certainly won't end well for you. At best, you'll get a small fine or a few points on your driving licence. At worst, if you really lose your shit, you'll be handcuffed and helped into the back of a van by several police officers who will probably enjoy themselves and will have a laugh about you later, whilst you're sat in a cell feeling sorry for yourself. As George Bernard Shaw advised, never wrestle with pigs. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. We were all excited and nervous about making our first arrest and for most of us it would be a rather unexciting shoplifter in a high street department store. The staff working in the police control room, which was known as the computer-aided dispatch or CAD room in the Met, would identify calls for service which were suitable for the street duty students to deal with, and we would be allocated those jobs, i.e. the jobs no one else wanted to deal with. Arresting someone for the first time felt like a pretty big deal. An arrested person was always referred to in the Met jargon as the prisoner, regardless of whether they'd ever been arrested before or been to prison at any time for that matter. Thus, a middle-aged woman who had been arrested for the very first time for drink driving after colliding with a bollard on her way home from her book club was referred to in exactly the same way as a heavily tattooed armed robber who'd spent half his life in prison. It was always amusing to see the look of indignation on the face of middle-aged detainees when they heard themselves being referred to as a prisoner. Back in 1989, pretty much everything was done on paper records. The prisoner would be taken to the custody block and the custody sergeant would book them in, writing the details on a paper custody record which would contain a record of everything that happened to them whilst they were in custody. 
The arresting officer would write their notes of arrest in a small notepad called an incident report book, or IRB. And anything that had happened out on the street or before arriving at the police station was recorded in the officer's pocket notebook. The prisoner would be kept in a cell and then later taken to an interview room and interviewed by two officers, one of whom would laboriously write down verbatim every question and the answers given by the detainee. Eventually, the custody sergeant would decide whether there was sufficient evidence to charge the arrested person and decide which offence or offences they should be charged with. The arresting officer would then start pulling together a set of case papers, many of which needed to be typewritten on old rickety typewriters. This entire process would take a minimum of three or four hours and frequently much longer for even the simplest of offences. I can remember sitting typing form after form, all of which required much of the same information to be duplicated. Arrested person's name, date of birth, address, etc. Using carbon paper to create three copies, as this was a time before photocopiers even existed. None of us had been taught to type, so it was a horribly laborious process involving two-fingered typing and a lot of bad-tempered swearing. Shortly after this time, tape-recorded interviews were introduced, which made the process of interviewing much faster and more natural. Two copies of the interview were made simultaneously, one of which was sealed and could not be opened other than by a court order, and the other was a working copy. The interview later needed to be transcribed verbatim from the working copy, which was extremely time-consuming, meaning that whilst the interview was more natural and free-flowing, as well as being less open to suggestions that we had made it all up, the end-to-end -end process took much longer. As our ten weeks of puppy walking progressed, we would be let off the leash a little bit more and allowed to patrol in pairs without an instructor and eventually alone as our confidence and competence grew. Occasionally, we would get in hot water. And my first experience of that came from unexpected quarters. I was on foot patrol on the busy high street when I saw a small hatchback which appeared to have been abandoned near a busy junction. It was parked at a 45 degree angle from the footpath and cars were having to drive around it to get down the road. I did a vehicle check on it to make sure it wasn't stolen and it turned out that the registered keeper was local. I started filling out a fixed penalty notice for the offence of unnecessary obstruction i.e. parking or leaving a car in a way that obstructs the highway. And as I was doing that, a very elderly lady pushing a shopping trolley on wheels came scurrying up to me looking agitated. Young man, what exactly are you doing? she asked angrily. Is this your car, madam? I replied. Yes, it is. What's the problem? Your car is causing an obstruction. You'll need to move it. It's doing nothing of the sort and I will not move it. I'm doing my shopping and I have an exemption as I'm disabled, she responded. I could see that she did have a disabled sticker in the windscreen, but that didn't give her licence to abandon the bloody car anywhere. I stuck to my guns. She'd failed the attitude test massively, and frankly, I didn't care whether she was 18 or 80, she was taking the piss parking like that. We stood eyeing each other with mutual dislike. It was like a Mexican standoff. Me a 23-year-old Metropolitan Police officer in full uniform, 
a fixed penalty pad and a pen in my hand. Her, a blue-rinsed, 85-year-old woman with a bad attitude and a tartan shopping trolley on wheels. I'm asking you to move your car because it's causing an obstruction. If you don't move it, I'll issue you with a ticket for unnecessary obstruction, I told her. She strode up to me and eyed me with genuine venom. You will do nothing of the sort, young man, she exclaimed. I gave it a moment's thought and said to myself, bollocks to you, you're getting a ticket. I carried on issuing the ticket and ignored her increasingly hysterical reaction to me, writing it up and sticking it under her windscreen wiper. I walked off with her annoying, whiny voice receding into the distance. I carried on with my patrol, and in less than ten minutes I heard my call sign on the radio. Peace Donnelly, can you return to Zulu Tango and report to your sergeant? I walked back to the Nick, and as I entered the sergeant's office I glanced across into the front office where members of the public came in to tell us their tales of woe, and sure enough, the poisoned dwarf was there, bending the ear of the poor station officer. My street duty sergeant was a great guy called Mitchling, and he was stood there grinning at me with Bob, my PC instructor. Ian, what's going on? There's an outraged old lady at the front counter who says that you stuck her on for obstructing the highway. She's not a happy bunny, mate. She's a retired head teacher, and she wants to make a complaint about you. I told them what had happened, and they both started laughing. Ian, mate, said Mitch, sometimes you might be right in the eyes of the law, but it's just not worth it. Have you got the ticket on you? I handed them the ticket that I'd written out, and to my surprise and genuine annoyance, he ripped it in half. Sarge, she was taking the piss. The car was blocking half the high street. She refused to move it, so I was left with no choice. I know, mate. He did 100% the right thing, honestly. But believe me, it's just not worth the hassle at court. This was my first lesson on how to police with discretion. But to be honest, it really annoyed me. She was an overly entitled, white, middle-class, elderly woman who thought she was exempt from the rules that everyone else had to follow. Having been told that she needed to move her car, she'd refused. On that basis, she'd been stuck on. Tough shit. We'd all taken an oath to uphold the law without fear or favour. It just didn't seem right to back down just because she was old and had an attitude. However, Mitch had the benefit of knowing how this would play out in court. A poor old disabled woman prosecuted for doing her shopping in the high street. It would be reported negatively in the local newspapers and the Met wouldn't look good. As I was leaving the Nick to resume my foot patrol, I saw her getting into her car which, to my irritation, was parked on a double yellow line outside the police station. She saw me watching her, and she gave me a poisonous glare. I briefly contemplated giving her a parking ticket for the double yellow line, just to really piss her off, but I thought better of it, and carried on walking. Before long, I was introduced to the local mine of information whose job it was to collate all of the intelligence relating to local crime and criminals. This person was imaginatively referred to as the collator, and every police station had one. Generally, the collator was a crusty old PC 
who had an unbelievable ability to remember pretty much anything that had happened in the area in the past 500 years. Frequently, the clater would be assisted by a deputy, who was usually a retired clater, who could go back a further 300 years. It was almost impossible to ask a question that the clater and deputy clater were unable to answer. They were like a pair of policing rain men. You could walk into their office and describe someone you had chased from a burglary over garden fences and lost, and they would give you their name, where they lived, their shoe size, and what they liked to eat for breakfast. It was impressive, to say the least. The clater's door was always open, and the kettle was always on. The office was lined with steel cabinets, and each one was packed with little drawers chock full of six by four index cards, all in alphabetical order as you went round the room. Every single person who had come into the notice of police locally would have a card, and in the case of prolific criminals, they would have thick wads of dozens of cards going back many years. The entries on the cards were typed by the collator and indexed by date. Each dated entry would detail the person's offending history and any new intelligence. It was fascinating to flick through the cards relating to a particular person and look at their passport-sized photographs that were taken on arrest to see how they'd morphed from being a fresh-faced child of 11 or 12 on their first arrest. You would frequently be able to spot the point when they started using drugs, usually in their late teens, and then they would become more and more gaunt, pale and unhealthy looking over the years. There would then be a gap of several years when they'd been in prison and their next photo would show them looking fitter, healthier and having put on a bit of weight. Then the gradual physical decline would start all over again. Such repeat offenders were often dead by their late twenties. The pictures of those criminals who stuck to making money and avoided drugs showed a different physical journey. Again, there would be the first photo of a young and relatively innocent-looking child, arrested for something like shoplifting or criminal damage, and then gradually they would morph into a hard-faced career criminal, looking sullenly at the camera, frequently wearing blood-stained clothing or with a split lip from fighting in the lead-up to their arrest. The pictures that I find most depressing were those of some of the girls. Again, at first, there would be a picture of an innocent-looking teenage girl of 13 or 14 smiling at the camera after a silly arrest for possession of cannabis or a trivial theft. They would then be coming into custody regularly over the next five or six years after they got into heroin, usually fed by a druggy boyfriend, at which point they would change into a skinny, pasty-faced, spotty drug addict with greasy hair and rotting black teeth. Often, before they were 20, they would be prostituting themselves on the streets to feed their habit. It was very, very tragic, and something that I would sadly witness right up to the end of my police career. These index cards could be flicked through like some sort of awful flipbook that fast-forwarded through a young person's life, and you could see them age before your eyes as they descended into an increasingly dark and hopeless place. Most of these prolific offenders only went in one downward direction, but some managed to sort themselves out. Sometimes they would meet a girl and just grow out of it. I would be scouted by a big football club or get into boxing or athletics and 
decide that running on a track was better than running from the police. I can remember quite a few of the young people from my early days who went on to become household names in the world of TV, music or sport after putting their grim, self-destructive lifestyles behind them. It's hard to believe now that all this intelligence was stored on little index cards, thousands upon thousands of them, in every police station. It was Dickensian in many ways, but it worked really bloody well. The process for submitting intelligence was dead simple. You just scribbled it on a form or in an A4 book in the collator's in tray, and they would do the rest. They would get all the stop and search forms and copies of the paperwork and photographs after every arrest, and they would monitor the communications on the radio, listening to the stops, name checks and vehicle checks going on out on the ground, frequently chipping in with their pearls of wisdom and collate it all together. It was far from perfect, of course. The absence of computerization meant that trying to find out about someone passing through your patch who had offended in a different part of London or in a different part of the country required phone calls to be made to colleagues from other police stations. If someone was committing offences across a wide geographic area, it made it tricky to join the dots. We did have the police national computer, however, and this was used constantly by patrolling officers to check the names and vehicle details of suspects out on the ground. The street duties course flew by, and we ticked off a range of incidents and arrests that would become part and parcel of policing, dealing with the sad, the bad and the mad. Our arrest tally grew, and inevitably we all vied with one another for the highest number of arrests. There was a clear pecking order in terms of arrests. At the top were the quality crime arrests. The arrests that generated the most kudos were and still are, those catching someone in the act of committing a serious criminal offence as a result of getting there quickly, following a call from a member of the public, or by using good policing skills. The very best arrests would be for offences of this nature where an officer had arrived on the scene and then chased the suspect on foot, often through back gardens, over fences and walls, for eventually catching them. The absolute gold standard arrests were those where there was a fight at the end of such a chase in which the arresting officer came out on top. Maximum respect would be given to the arresting officer in those situations. Near the bottom of the pecking order were arrests for offences like shoplifting, where the suspect had already been detained by store security and it was simply a matter of turning up and going through the tedious process of taking them into custody and bagging up all the stolen gear before escorting them back to the police station. The worst arrests, which generated a great deal of piss-taking from colleagues and filthy looks from the custody sergeant, were for drunk and incapable where someone would be found lying, semi-comatose in the street, periodically shouting obscenities at passers-by. If it was the chief superintendent or the detective inspector, it would take them home. But if not, the van would be called, and they would be detained for their own protection, taken to a cell to sober up, and kicked out in the morning. Frequently they would puke in the van or the custody block, and very often they had already shat themselves before we turned up. Strictly speaking, this should have been treated as a medical issue. But in reality, 
the ambulance crews would refuse to take them for obvious reasons. Occasionally, a new custody sergeant, who was a royal pain in the arse, would join a team. Someone who would work at snail's pace, nitpick every little irrelevant detail, and refuse to accept perfectly good arrests. For some inexplicable reason, they would find themselves presented with dozens of filthy, smelly drunks that the PCs had found by scarring every pub car park, railway station and urine-stained underpass for miles around. This would continue until the custody sergeant realised what was going on and got with the programme. During street duties, we quickly realised how much police officers have to deal with death. In my first ten weeks, I went to lots of non-suspicious sudden deaths. We dealt with fatal heart attacks in the street, elderly residents found dead at home by family or carers, and the occasional fatal road traffic accident. It surprised me how many suicides the police had to deal with, and sadly this was an operational reality for me in every uniform posting at every rank during my time in the force. Some of these suicides live on in my mind many years later. This, together with a lot of other bad stuff that I had to deal with over the years, had a rather detrimental effect on my mental health from time to time. I will return to the issue of mental health as I recount different stages in my career. It's a massive issue for police officers today in a way that it wasn't when I first joined. This isn't necessarily because we were made of sterner stuff. I think the reason for this is that when I joined we dealt with a lot of awful things, but we felt supported by the organisation to get on and do our job. We also felt supported by society at large. Today, police officers still deal with all that bad stuff, but they feel completely unsupported and unfairly criticised from every side, including from their own organisation. It's very stressful going to work day after day to do a difficult job in that atmosphere. We don't treat members of the military in this way just before they go off to war. But even though police officers take similar risks every day, a lot of people still feel that it's okay to make them feel like shit. <laughs>